0: And welcome to This Week in Interview. It is Wednesday, 8 p.m. And this is TDNRadio.net. I am your host, Anthony Drago. Every Wednesday, 8 p.m., we do This Week in Interview, which is a show where we have conversations with persons of uh, who have interesting information to share, whether because of their life experience, their training, their skill, or some their work. And I am in a fortunate position to, to get in touch with these people. Um, sometimes they come recommended by listeners and I have the privilege of, of talking to them and I, and I share those conversations with you. That is this week in interview. Tonight on, on the show, I have a special um, guest and uh, we're going to be talking foreign policy and how um, small islands like Caribbean islands, countries can, can use the foreign policy strategy, the foreign affairs strategy, to really drive economic growth and and to and to really have uh, a more a better place in the world and that can that can show improvement and and improve in better um, enhance I should say the life of their citizens. So welcome to this weekend interview. It's eight pm as usual. Uh, I usually start the show with. Um, the Caricom anthem. So I'm going to launch right into that because we have a conversation coming up that is just going to be so full of information, so much stuff to share, so much ground to cover. I don't want to waste any, any time before I come back and, um, get our guests on here. So let's listen to Mikkel as she does the, the Caricom anthem. And when we come back, I'm going to launch into a conversation that I know you will enjoy. You can grab your pen, grab your pad. I know you will take notes um, and um, I will get your feedback and, and we'll cover some of the questions that you usually send me. So Let's listen to Mikel and, and we'll be right back.
1: From many distant lands, our forefathers came. Some seeking adventure, some bound in chains. Through battles waged and fought, through victory and pain, by test of their courage, our freedom was gained. The heroes of lands in the sun, we vow to join hands and to focus on building one Caribbean. Raise your voices high and sing of your courage.
0: Every week, I play Michael Henderson singing the Caricom Anthem, and every week, I am totally impressed with her talent. Um, the song is well-written, and she does such an awesome job of delivering it. And of course, uh, the reason why I play the Caricom Anthem is just to keep the hope and the dream alive that one day, as a Caribbean, as a people, um, we will realize the dream of one country, of a unified approach in, in, in the world instead of several small islands. Well, that's same sort of fits with our topic. As I told you before the break, that our topic tonight is foreign affairs. And my guest tonight is Mr. Crispin Gregoire. Um, Crispin was, uh, has been Dominica's ambassador. He served as Dominican ambassador to the United Nations. He was the director for the Caribbean at the UNDP. He's had positions with the Ford Foundations and he's had, um, various know, really important roles in, in the US, in, in Africa, as I said, in the Caribbean, um, on an international and regional basis, which gives him so much experience and knowledge and and, and just general information that he can share with us on this week in interview. He's been my guest a couple of times before, and each time, um, the hour has gone by really, really fast. So let me not take more of our time. Let me um, give a very warm welcome to Mr Crispin Gregoire. Welcome to this weekend interview. Welcome back, I should say, to this weekend interview, Crispin.
2: Yes, uh, Anthony, good evening and, and uh, thank you for having me. Um, good evening to your listeners and um, it's a pleasure to be on your show again.
0: Yeah, it's always I always look forward to our I always look forward to our conversations because Um, As I always say every week, uh, the objective of this weekend interview is to bring uh, information to our listeners that they wouldn't necessarily get from just browsing the internet or clicking on their remote and their TV. We always bring it from a different angle. And because most of the times that we speak, you actually have the ability to speak from your own personal experience. It fits right into that objective of this weekend interview. And so this week, our our Topic of conversation is foreign affairs, and um, a lot of times, uh, my experience with uh, foreign affairs in the Caribbean is uh, a lot of t- uh, some. It, it serves as a reward, maybe for, for persons who work hard to get the party elected. Start watching the party are rewarded with what is considered to be a cushy job in somewhere in Europe or United States, and and that's and it seemed to be to be that. But I I get the feeling that as a career diplomat, you might have quite a different um, how you say a different take on it. So so let's start the conversation by um, give us your impression of how a country the size of the country that we have, countries that we have in the Caribbean, small island countries can benefit from a well um, thought out well implemented foreign policy.
2: Yes. Well, you know, the one of the things that we 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 attained after we became independent in 1978 was this um, arena of foreign policy, which before as a colony we, we did not have that um, that possibility. And uh, Dominica, um, you know, as a as a small island state and as a Caricom country, uh, has a particular Uh, the direction in which it would pursue foreign policy. First of all, you know, um, just uh, uh, managing foreign policy has its own challenges because as a small country, we are certainly not um, equipped with the resources to have representation in in many countries. But, um, you know, as we have developed over the last 40 years, um, we've uh, tried to conduct um, relations with other states or diplomacy in a, a few centers and you know w- small countries like ours recognizing the limited resources we try our best to exercise foreign policy um, in, in in places that afford us the um, ability to reach as many countries as possible so i would say that um, it, if you want to conduct an effective foreign policy as a small country like Dominica, you'd want to have representation in, in, in the UK. Um, you'd want to have representation in the United States. Um, you'd want to have representation, um, in some other, uh, major powers like China. And we, we do have, we do have, as of 2014, an embassy in China. Um, although, you know, um, that has its own um, character because um, the ambassador of Dominica to China, we don't know much about that person. We don't know much about the China mission of Dominica or embassy of Dominica. Uh, um, one, one thing I should say on that is that they, they, it's, it's rare that our, our ambassador in China is actually a Chinese um, national uh typically you know in terms of representation countries typically have their own nationals represent them in some cases, countries have appointed foreigners to represent them in places where they could not afford to have representation and um and, and usually um, that has its own challenge because we don't always know the background of people that represent us in other in other jurisdictions, so, if I mean,
0: they are not our own nationals. And dwell on that a little bit. Is it, for example, you you said that um, our Chinese am, um, ambassador to China is a Chinese? Is that is that usual that they, that even if it's a foreigner, it's a foreigner, it's a citizen of the nation with which you have you are establishing that diplomatic relation? Is that is that how it's normally done, or would it be so? For example, maybe you can, maybe the ambassador for Saint Lucia or the ambassador for Canada can also serve as your person in that embassy. I mean, is it? What um, I'm asking is that is it is it unusual that our well, ambassador to it, China is a is a citizen of China?
2: Yeah, it, it it's kind of unusual because typically you um, you would want to. Um, have a Dominican national representative, representing in a place like China. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, you know, there are not uh, many countries in China whose ambassador is, not, is, is the Chinese. Mm-hmm. I, I found that rather unusual, and I certainly would not recommend that we appoint the Chinese as our ambassador in an important country like China you'd want to have. Mm-hmm. If you look at all the other CARICOM countries, they have their own nationals representing them. Of course, you know the Chinese. How that, you know, there's some history to it. How that person came to be the ambassador in in uh, in China. Mm-hmm. He was one of those interlocutors with the prime minister uh, in switching the diplomatic relations from Taiwan to. um to to beijing beijing right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and and but interestingly um, just to say that that particular individual is a taiwanese um citizen to begin with oh uh yeah so i i found it rather interesting that the chinese accepted him as an ambassador but he had brought he had brought um you know uh, a country to the chinese
0: Right. That that sheds that, shows, so, that shed a little bit of light on there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, the the um, but in terms of you know foreign affairs, I would say there's three things that I would consider important in foreign affairs. One is building, advancing your own national goals and interests through your foreign foreign relationships. And so, advancing your economic interests, advancing your um, interests as far as domestic policies, um, advancing investment, advancing trade—all of these things are important pillars um, of your foreign your foreign affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in the in the in the area of cooperation, what we call cooperation in foreign affairs has to do with how you you. Um, advance your your um, internal affairs through relationships with other countries. So that you can think of things like development assistance. You could think of things like scholarships, technical training, um, uh, technical assistance for um, technical assistance for whatever development that things that you want to do. Whether it's like um, in technical areas, like um, road construction or engineering or telecommunications or energy, you know. So technical cooperation. And many countries may not be able to give you financial aid as um, development assistance, but they certainly could give you expertise for technical cooperation in some area. And, and another pillar of foreign affairs is where you uh, what I call um, solidarity with other countries. Like other countries have interests and um you know they which they want to advance and sometimes they solicit your know, support for those interests sometimes it's for um they want to have ele- elected elected well nationals elected to international bodies whether it's whether it's um, legal bodies or un un bodies or any one of the international organizations they have um, boards and and you can support countries um, in um aspirations to serve on international bodies so that's that kind of solidarity and then you know I would also say you know that foreign affairs is also an arena to support uh, the global agenda there's something you know a lot of the global problems that we have today like like sustainable development climate change um the fight against terrorism um they um we have a lot of um diseases, um, that, uh, that we, we by ourselves not manage no one country can manage them. So you need international cooperation and, 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 and among states to solve those things. Right. So, so I would say, um, supporting the global agenda, you know, and, and now, you know, the part of fighting the, on the global agenda is fighting poverty, you know, um, Addressing poverty in all its all its forms and facets. So no one country can do that together. Um, For example, you know the sustainable development goals that the United Nations is now promoting has become part of the agenda for the next um, 15 years, the 2030 agenda of the UN. Uh, is to address poverty is to address things like water scarcity is to address so a range of problems that we have in the world that no one country can address and um so that we have to cooperate as
0: countries right so 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 i guess you, you, this is an overview of um of of what foreign or foreign policy how you go uh, what should be in the making of a foreign policy And therefore if a country Knows those aspects Of foreign policy Then they can go about And and, um, and take advantage of it I remember for years um, For example the, the Chinese used to give us a lot of assistance To try to co- co- Encourage us to vote for them in an issue of whaling um, yeah. movement, is The Japanese uh, The Japanese I mean not the Chinese Japanese and so that, I guess that comes under the, um, the idea of, um, of, of, of solidarity, I guess, um, soliciting our solidarity in, in that sense. So, um, let's jump right into your career as the ambassador to, okay. United, to the United, before you, United. Uh-huh. before you go, before you go into that, I wanted to say one
2: more thing about foreign affairs. And that is, and that's a very important one. And that is, you know, when you, um join the international system as we did when in 1978 when we became um a, a, a nation, a nation right. um there there are a, a, a number of, of, of international conventions or, or, or legal um norms mm-hmm. that we we subscribe to so that you know um so such conventions like the um civil and political rights and there are a whole set of um, conventions that we, we have ratified as a country, mm-hmm. which means that we accept the international uh, rules of the game, of being a, a nation-state. And these things are very important because they, and they, 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 they we are committed, if you will, to these rules. And these rules, these international rules, also shapes our laws in our own country. Okay. And uh, and that's very important because you know sometimes we when we violate these these rules these laws that in our own country we also are violating international norms and one of those things is has to do with political rights. If we don't, for example, create a, a, a level playing field in our own countries, we are violating international laws and conventions. I just wanted to flag that.
0: Right, and I want to stay on that a little bit because sometimes there is a little bit of an understanding. Or there is a little um, gray area where s- sometimes we see um, what some what our citizens might see as an imposition from the outside. Uh, yes. So, uh, and what you're saying is that it's not every time, for example, um, is the US that's trying to bully us into into accepting a certain norm. It is actually We signed up for that when we agreed to be a nation and and to partake in the United Nations and all of that. Some of that thing we signed up for.
2: Right. No, we actually, we have, as a country, ratified a number of conventions. Mm -hmm. and um, They have to do with human rights, with political rights, with um, rights um, of, um, for example, the rights of the disabled people, um, uh, rights related to indigenous peoples. Um, r- r- women's rights, you know, um, gender, and uh, gender rights. Um, and, um, some of our laws actually contravene some of these, um, uh, international norms. Uh, for example, one of the things that I had to do as an ambassador was to, um, present our, our report on human rights to the Human Rights Council and every country in the world has to do that um uh, we we are not a perfect country and no country is perfect on human rights you know but um for example they would they ask the i would go before member states would ask questions about what's the condition of our prisons what is how do we treat um people of um uh uh, different gender, you know, people who, uh, especially uh, homosexuality, was a, a big issue for us because you know we have laws that, uh, um, you know, uh, against um, homosexuality. Uh, in this current period that we are in, we are in the world, we are seen as a backward, as backward, not addressing that, not giving rights, you know, removing from the books. Some of these archaic laws that we inherited from the colonial era, you know? So, so there are, sometimes when people think it's an imposition from outside, it's not. It's actually, we have signed up to certain conventions and, and the, the international community expects us to change the laws in our country to fit the conventions that we, um, we, we, we um,
0: ratified. Alright, so, so conventions, um, and, and, and you also talk about polit- uh, political freedom, human rights, um, and all, and all of those issues. And yeah. I, I was, well, so that takes me, that segues nicely into where I was going when I wanted you to, to talk about some of the, some of the roles, some of the duties, some of the experiences and memories you have when you were serving as Dominica's ambassador to the UN. Um, you know, if you can relate uh, one or two of them that sort of highlights um, the importance of the role and how important how how important it is to be careful to in the choice of of staff that we have right. at our at our international missions.
2: Right. Well, something you said, you know, um, in the in the beginning um, in your introduction was that sometimes um, some of these uh, of, of people who are appointed to serve as ambassadors. Uh, sometimes it is because they, um, may have contributed to a political campaign or they come from a particular, the ruling party or whatever. And, and so I would say that there are two types of ambassadors. There are those that are, um, are political appointees and then there are those that are career diplomats. Now, there are countries, and I can give a good example in the Caribbean, um, like, uh, Barbados and Jamaica and Trinidad. Tend to appoint career diplomats to represent them. It, they might not strictly follow that, but 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 for the most part, most of the ambassadors are career diplomats. These are people who are civil servants who um, uh, specialize in in, in in international relations. Um, now, smaller the smaller Caricom countries like Dominica have tended to appoint political appointees as ambassadors. The thing is that my view on that, and I, you know, I, I, I hasten to add that I was a political appointee. However, I came to diplomacy as as somebody who had studied the field. You know, I, I my my first degree was in international relations, and I, and I studied with some uh, very um, important scholars in in international relations, and I, I think I I was quite prepared to go to the UN. It doesn't make any sense to appoint a political appointee who does not understand international relations or has not studied the field because the field is so vast and, um, and people will soon know, you know, your, your, your background. People will be looking at your background as to whether you're a qualified person to serve. And that has to do with how effective you would be as an ambassador. Now, Dominica, is one of the character countries with the smallest representation in, in, in diplomacy. Um, whether it's in New York, whether it's in Washington, whether it's in London, these are the three places where we, we have had a, a long-term presence. In recent times, we've had embassies in Cuba, and embassy in China. We no longer have um, Brussels? No. Well, you see, in Brussels, we never really had an ambassador in Brussels. I, I believe during the Freedom Party, um, Charles Tavern was in Brussels. Um, I'm not sh- I can't remember if he was representing the OECS in Brussels because we, they, 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 the Caribbean countries, the OECS countries in Brussels, tend to have a joint mission. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they used to have a joint mission in Canada, which they phased out. Um, but um, we, we so we we were always representing Except, and I'm, I don't have a lot of clarity on when Mr. Savrin was in Brussels, whether he was representing Dominica or the or the Eastern Caribbean States. But however, later on, it was um, a, 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 a joint representation that was um, there for the OECs. Okay. I remember Ambassador Edwin Laurent from Saint Lucia was representing the OECs, and he was the one who did a lot of the negotiations on bananas. Right? Um now in New York um we the unfortunate thing I think in New York is that we only have one diplomat who is an ambassador and, and that is really taxing on that person. It, it it takes a a very skillful person to play that role. I I was um I was actually the first full time ambassador in New York because before me we had a, a man called um, Mr. Simon Richards. Mm-hmm. He was the ambassador of Dominica to the UN for many, many years, starting from um, the government of Eugenia Charles to all the way to Rosie Douglas. And after, he, but he was part time. He he was a full time um, lawyer in a law firm, and then he would do our our representation on a part time basis. Right. It's after he left, he he retired. Um, he. Then I was appointed and I became the first full-time ambassador at the UN. Um, in terms of in terms of what the, what you know, I, I was there for eight years and I must say it was quite an honor to serve Dominica. And um, and you know because I had the task of representing Dominica full time, it for the first time gave Dominica visibility at the UN because for you know when Mr. Richards and his and the previous ambassadors um where they they we never got the the full complement of representation full time representation um you see for you to reach all of the countries in the international um system you need a full time representation but you also need other diplomats other the staff to help build those relationships because one person just cannot do it it's just way too much but you know in the situation that i found myself of having to do it alone um i i chose what would be the best approach to having an effective representation which means one is participating in 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 the in the agenda of the general assembly and you know the general assembly's work is done through six committees and these committees all meet the same day every every day of the week um Monday to Friday, um, for the three months from October to December. Okay. And so, so you know, there's always something to, to attend. And the way I did it, um, Anthony, was to, I, I did um, recruit interns from um, universities like Columbia University and Yale, um, graduate students who were pursuing their master's degrees they they are eager to get that training and to to um, work with a, a delegation. So I um I I asked those schools of um in, international relations um to provide me with um, highly qualified students who would help me to do that work. And they they were excellent. Um, I would have them staff the committees because as I said there are six committees, so I would get at least two graduate students for each committee. And then that's how I covered all the the committees at the UN. And and our voting record, you know, went up. I mean, Dominica was not missing votes. Before I came, you know, we were not that, we were not present. We were part-time. I don't think that after I left the UN, um, you know, my successor was not, for for a a good part of that time, my successor was um, not really present. So, how so you, we,
0: Crispin, how how do you check a country's voting records on those committees? Is that public knowledge? Is that something that citizens can scan? It, it is a public record.
2: It is a public record. If you go on the website of the um, of the UN UN and you look at G- General Assembly um, voting on any particular um, resolution, because the work of the UN is done through resolutions in all the committees, you can see how a country votes. Okay. And if a country is absent from voting, you will see that as well. Um, uh, sometimes countries abstain, uh, sometimes it, depending on how, um, uh, political the, the, resolution is, sometimes countries don't vote, they, they just absent themselves. Mm-hmm. But, but you can see, you can see the pattern of whether a country is always absent.
0: The reason, the reason, and, I um, asked, the reason and you know, it, the reason why I um I, I sort of wanted to stress on that is because when you were describing one of the aspects of foreign policy, you were talking about how countries, maybe even more powerful countries or more well-off countries, can solicit solidarity in terms of trying to encourage you to vote for them in exchange for some kind of assistance. But if you yeah. if you don't have a record of voting or being present to vote, then that that's one resource that you don't have that, that that can be attractive in that sense. So that's that's yeah. what I was asking. I wanted to, to, to just pause on that well,
2: point. well let me let me say on this, right, that there are resolutions that are adopted by consensus. Mm. And many resolutions are adopted by consensus. But the more political resolutions, especially those that have to deal with things like human rights, things that have to deal with the budget of the UN Sometimes um, will be subjected to a vote, and when a resolution is subjected to a vote, every vote counts right. you know and, and countries do, do seek your vote. they do seek you out to vote um, for, with them, particular groups of countries. And you know the U n the way things happen is by groups. No, no one country except major powers is important at the U n because you know when it comes to the General Assembly, everybody has one vote. It's in the Security Council, you have a different matter, but in the General Assembly, everybody has one vote. So sometimes your vote matters. And sometimes, you know, depending on who you ally with, you might, you know, you would ally with like-minded countries. Sometimes, you know, you might ally with countries based on being small island states, depending on whether the issue has to do with sustainable development. But when it comes to human rights, it's very political, and you might ally with um either a major power like the US or you might ally with um the developing countries right and the developing countries is quite a, a, an important block at the UN um that group is called the non you have the two groups you have the group of 77 and you have the non-aligned countries these are all developing countries and um they they, they the non-aligned countries tend to vote in in, uh, in a political fashion and um, you know, sometimes the, the countries that they are voting against would be like United States and Europe and the EU, you know, so um the more developed countries may not have the same interests as the developing countries and so um the important thing is to participate in voting because countries respect your vote. They respect your position. And one of the things that I I learned, you know, Anthony, as a diplomat was that it, it it helped me to appreciate why countries take a particular position and to respect a position, you know, like, um, in diplomacy, you you really have to learn to respect other people's views, even though you may not agree with it, you would respect it and appreciate and, and try to appreciate why they take a particular position. And, and that would, that would be, um, that would be, um, uh you need to know the, the the particular historical circumstances which drives a particular position from a from a, a country right like for example you know if you take the palestinian conflict and there are a lot of resolutions at the un about the palestinian conflict you really have to know the history of of palestine and and that whole conflict with israel to understand why the arabs take a particular position
0: and why they um why the um, Israel and the U.S. The Isra- Israel takes a particular position. And, and so a lot
2: of um, diplomacy is really on um, an international relation, is really understanding the history that gives rise to why countries take a particular position. And as a diplomat, you really have to familiarize yourself with the history of countries. I have no and
0: And then, as you said, Um, it's difficult if your, if your mission is staffed by, by just one person.
2: Oh, absolutely. It's way too much work for one person. There's just no way that, that uh, one person can do it. Um, so you would have to prioritize what you can, what you can do. And, um, but, but that does not absolve you of the responsibility to participate in the full, work of the UN because
0: as a member state that is your right and that's your obligation so does the UN have resources that would assist smaller countries like Dominica to be able to staff their missions
2: no the, the UN doesn't give you that mm-hmm. um, however you know um, the uh, agencies like UNDP might give you some assistance to have um, staff mm-hmm. um, but that these resources are not that easy to come by these days. Okay. Um, you can also ask other countries though to help you. Um, one of the one of the good things for for countries like Dominique is that CARICOM, the CARICOM group at the UN works as a block. So you know we do common we we do common things and we, we take common positions. And when it comes to writing statements, um, it, it might be a group a group statement. You know, so all the countries would contribute towards. Taking a particular um, position, and so so I must say that the CARICOM group of of, um, of diplomats they work very very closely together because we have the same issues. Mm.
0: All right, that was that, that I, I mean, there are some questions in that direction, but that that might be for your next time you come because um, the thought that just came to me is I'm always pushing the Caribbean becoming one nation, and yeah, would totally. Um, Affect us at the UN because now instead of having 10, 12 votes, we'll only have one. But that's, a, like I guess, that's well,
2: a different. That, that might, that might not work though, because you see, every um as far as um we we are certainly we are seen as a block, mm. the Caribbean block, right? Mm. But it's important to have the fourteen votes that mm-hmm. we have fourteen states in Caricom. Um, I, I I don't think we would ever reduce it to one. If but but we but, but we certainly even with the fourteen votes we are seen as a, a group. Mm-hmm. And, and and CARICOM is a very well respected group at the UN in terms of regional groups. Okay. See the UN works with regional groups and we belong to two regional groups, that that is Dominica. One regional group is CARICOM. And the second regional group is the group of, of um, Latin American and Caribbean states um, okay. called CELAC, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the community of, um, of Latin American and Caribbean states. So we belong to those two groupings. And, and that gives us a larger um, uh, stick in the, in the international system because as one country, we really don't matter, especially a micro-state like Dominica.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So let's, let's, let's jump forward a little bit. Um, I'm looking at the clock. And uh, let's talk about your time at the UNDP with the um, Director for the Caribbean. Let's talk briefly about your 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 time at, at the UNDP United Nations. Um, yeah,
2: but before we go there, right, I, I'm going to answer that question. But I wanted to just point out a few things that I was able to do when I was the Ambassador to the okay. UN. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And, you know, first of all, you know, Dominicus was one of the um, early members of the International Criminal Court. So I had to serve as the International Criminal Court, which is based in The Hague. Mm-hmm. And we, we were, in terms of the history of the court, we will go down in the history of the court as one of the first Caribbean countries to be part of the International Criminal Court. And um, we, we were involved in electing the first set of judges for the court. The other thing is that um as the you know I, I was able to serve as the chairman of the um CARICOM group of ambassadors and um and I was particularly involved in building the relationship with Turkey so the CARICOM Turkey relationship was you know I spearheaded that I was also very active in the um organizing the international day of remembrance of the victims of slavery which was a, a, a CARICOM initiative at the UN And also for, Mm. yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And so every March 25th, starting from 2008, the UN um, recognized the International Day of Remembrance of the Victims of Slavery and uh, Victims of the Slave Trade. Um, uh, Then I was very active in also the memorial for the victims of slavery. Um, I was the the, the co-chair of that. So these are some of the things besides doing the diplomatic work that also we were involved in and that gave us a lot of visibility at the UN as a, one of the countries in CARICOM leading the charge um for the for um on human rights and the recognition of the um the atrocities and the genocide that was committed of people of African descent. Mm-hmm. Um the other thing was that I was also very active in the the um uh Indigenous peoples, um, the the Convention on the Rights of the Indigenous People, um, that was passed in 2007, and we I was actually very active, probably one of the most active ambassadors on the rights of indigenous
0: people at the UN. So yes, so I just wanted to flag that, so that, and, that um, that's very impressive. You know, my permanent background on my Facebook page is that um, that banner that talks about. Um, Remembrance of slavery. Yes, <laughs> I have that as my because you know, I, And
2: you know, yeah. if you if, you know, um, your listeners they can Google the the UN slavery memorial or the UN International Day on the of um, Slavery. Um, they can they they'll, they'll get a website that will give them a lot of information on that. Now as to the my, my stint at UNDP, um, you know, I I transitioned now from a diplomat to a. a a staff of the senior staff of the UN system and um i i was quite lucky to to become a, uh, get a director position at the at, at the UN and uh, i was responsible in the latin america caribbean bureau of undp to be the director for the caribbean um more specifically the director for the the CARICOM region of of the Caribbean because you know um, you have in addition to to CARICOM you have Cuba and you have Dominican Republic and then Haiti although it's part of CARICOM but because it has a a, a UN peacekeeping mission there they were treated somewhat different from from the rest of CARICOM um, my job was to manage the um, five country offices in the Caribbean community um region so that was uh Guyana uh Suriname Trinidad Barbados office, which which um covered the OECS and Jamaica and and but that I also had some um limited oversight over and and Dominican Republic but we had those those two countries were treated more as part of Latin America than Caribbean so I um one of the things that I, 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 I had to do during the time I was there, the three years that I was there, was to make sure that the financial viability of those Caribbean offices was was ensured because we were, we were operating in a period of limited resources. And these offices had not had any major management review for for a number of years. And, and now, you know, in a period of declining financial resources, I had to ensure that every single one of those five offices had a, a financial long-term um, uh, vision and to make sure that, you know, we find ways to make sure that we don't close any one of them. And so that was one of the things I, I did. The, the second thing was to raise money for for the offices and for the country. Um, before I left, I was able to negotiate a $15 million grant from the Japanese government for the, um, CARICOM, um, countries for sustainable development and, and climate, climate resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all, it put me in a position to speak to a lot of countries. I got support from, um, when we were doing the conference in, um, in Samoa on the small island state, I got funding from the government of Turkey, um, to help us to have, um, strong Caribbean representation in the conference. I helped to organize some of the side events in the conference in Samoa and, and, and also too, you know, some something very important happened then. Um UNDP um um seconded me to the office of the president of the General Assembly to to organize the World Conference on Indigenous Peoples. And you know, I, I mentioned before I was very active when the when the um Convention on the Rights of Indigenous People was being uh, negotiated mm-hmm. and um it, because of that past history, the indigenous people worldwide, they, 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 they had a lot of confidence in my ability to be um, uh, supportive of their, of their interests. So when, when my name was put forward for, to, to lead that, that initiative, that conference, the indigenous people worldwide, they embraced me. And, and, and probably that was one of the reasons why the conference was successful.
0: Right. So so before we leave that that aspect of it, though, um, in terms of foreign policy, I want you to speak a little bit specifically about um, more, the relationship with Morocco and sub-Saharan Africa and uh, sensitivity and, and the way it positions us in terms of the African countries and, and all of that. So just talk specifically right. as, as a special case. Yes.
2: Well, that's an important issue because, you know, um, the the issue Morocco and the Western Sahara is is an issue on the UN agenda, especially on the, the, before the decolonization committee, because the the last colony in Africa is Western Sahara. It used to be a Spanish colony. And after the Spain abandoned Western Sahara in 1974, um, the the Moroccans and the Mauritanians claim it was their territory well it went to court it went to the international court of justice which is the UN court and the court ruled that neither Morocco nor ni- Mauritania have any legal claim to western sahara that western sahara was uh, is a, is a, a country that should have its in its self determination right no, and no, no, um it, yeah, and, and it's, the aspirations of its people to be a nation-state is valid. But, but Morocco has, you know, um, since 1976, occupied Western Sahara. And uh, they are refusing, they have refused over the years to, to accept um, the, the, their aspiration for um, self-determination. And, and so Western Sahara remains on the UN list. There are 16 territories on the UN list. Um, that the, whose political status is to be decided. Um, that includes the Virgin Islands, um, both British and U.S. That includes um, Western Sahara, as the only African um, country, and some of the other um, territories in in uh, in the South Pacific. Um, you also have Bermuda, and you have um, Montserrat, and uh, uh, let's see Anguilla, in in Caricom. that? Anguilla, 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 and the British Virgin Islands. Um, so all of these, the the um, Cayman Islands and um, Turks and Caicos. All of these countries, they they are still colonies, and they are on the UN list of countries whose political status is to be decided. Um, and it's so, but anyway, um, but I should say in the specific case of Dominica. Dominica from 1979 to um, up till um, this uh, the administration of Roosevelt Skerritt, had um, supported the the Western Sahara's aspirations for self determination. Somewhere um, around um, 2010, um, the Skerritt administration abandoned that policy which which was started by the government of. Uh, Oliver Serafin, the interim government, Dominica recognized the um, the Polisario and the, the the Sahara Democratic Republic. Now um, we 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 didn't have diplomatic relations with Morocco, and I, I think one of the reasons was because Morocco was trampling on the rights of the the people of Western Sahara. So Dominica did not have an interest in Morocco having diplomatic relations with Morocco until they sorted out that that problem. However, in 2010, somewhere around there, the, the, the Dominican government um, uh, abandoned the past policies of, from '79 and began to establish diplomatic relations with Morocco, which to me was not a problem. But in doing so, they withdrew the, record, the diplomatic recognition of Western Sahara. And I think that was rather unfortunate
0: and something that I think um, has not been good for us. So, so we've so been say, getting. You saying that they they could have established diplomatic relations without abandoning that position of support for self. That that should you know, as a
2: country that, that was a colonial country, we should never support anybody anybody who is trampling on the on the aspirations of other people to to uh, for self determination. That's my view. Okay. And I think that we, we needed we could have established relations with Morocco but we should never ha- allow the moroccans to dictate to us that we would withdraw support of um the the, the western
0: saharan. Well, the irony is not lost on me that the, the legacy of um Rosie Douglas is um, well
2: is, yeah and you know you know what you know what the saharan said to me they couldn't believe that Rosie Douglas's party would be the party to abandon them because um um, the, the government of Eugenia Charles, although it was a center-right government, they embraced the aspirations of the Saharans throughout the 15 years that the the, um, the Freedom Party was in government. And when the, the UWP was in government for the, the, the four and a half years they were in office, they also continued that support. So for Rosie, Rosie Douglas' party, to be the one to 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 um, abandon the, the aspiration for self-determination, it really put a question on what was the international commitment of the of the Labour Party,
0: or the understanding of the of the con of of the, of, of the issues. Um, yes, right. Maybe, maybe, hmm? maybe may something that was done without even realizing the implications or the gravity.
2: Well, it was. I, I would, I would hasten to add, it was mainly driven by um, interest in aid, because Morocco offered aid. One of those, one of the things they offered was fertilizer for for agriculture. But that fertilizer, it comes from occupied territory. The, that very territory of Western Sahara that Morocco occupies. That's where the fertilizer is coming from. That's where the phosphate, that you make fertilizer. Western Sahara is rich in such resources. Mm. So the Moroccans are using you know, fertilizer from there to, to buy us, basically to
0: buy us, if you will. But but it's funny because agriculture in Dominica is not really at its, at its most thriving um, era right now. Um, so we could—it's almost like we could almost do without the fertiliser, but, but but talk a little bit about oh, how how that positions us um, with the other countries in Africa, the other the countries. Yeah. In Africa. Well,
2: well, the thing is that the first thing was that Morocco, for many many years, um, was not a member of the African Union because of that very issue. Because Western Sahara, the government of Western Sahara, is a government in waiting. Western Sahara is a full member of the African Union. Now Morocco fight to get back. They fought very hard to get back. They were the ones who left the African the Organization of African Unity, which was the precursor to the African Union. And then they um, last year they they became a member again and now you know they're facing some real issues because now they have to deal with Western Sahara as a member state of the African Union um and they they have um countries like Dominica doing their bidding at the UN because they 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 there's the UN decolonization committee of which the 6 OECS states are members and you know what that what has happened is that Morocco has has been able to create a split in CARICOM so CARICOM cannot anymore take a united position on self-determination on Western Sahara. Wow. Um, it has to, that Any kind of statement that CARICOM would put out has to be negotiated among those that support Morocco and those that don't. And, and the six OECS countries support Morocco and the, the other eight countries um, don't support Morocco at, at, um, on that question at the UN. Wow. Now, as far as those African states, how does that position us in the African Union? Well, the they, more influential African states, they they they're not happy at all with the position that countries like Dominica and the other OECS countries take on that question. Um, you're talking about South Africa, you're talking about Algeria, um, uh, Tanzania, um, uh, Nigeria. These are the these are the the more powerful um, African states in terms of of size and influence and um, military um, capability these countries do not support the Moroccan position at all. now there are some African countries that support Morocco, mainly um, former French colonies because france france supports Morocco and france has veto power in the, in the security council and one of the reasons why you know that that problem has not yet been resolved is because france always threatened to use its veto to support Morocco. But um, I believe that we are reaching a period where um, that, that long-standing conflict in Africa will be resolved, and it is my hope that, you know, the Caribbean countries will, 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 will look at this more seriously. But I, I, I am concerned that the six countries, the six OECS countries, that are basically being used by Morocco to, to do its bidding for a little, little little promise of little amounts of aid, And I, I think that, you know, the integrity of those countries on that particular question of self-determination is in question.
0: Especially one of, one of the main um, pillars of, of CARICOM right now is to go after repatriation for slavery and, and slave trade and, and, and colonization. And reparation. Uh, and reparation. You would think that, um, that would fit right into the support for that. Um, so, so that's, so that's, that's an interesting, interesting. But,
2: you know, I, I'll tell you one of the things that's important for, um, the CARICOM states is to, for closer, um, uh, relationships with African countries, because, you know, there are 54 African states in, the, in, in the UN. Mm-hmm. That's almost a quarter of the member states. And when you add the, the, the 14 CARICOM countries, when we team up as a bloc, because for for pushing the, the, the resolution on the International Day of Remembrance for the Victims of Slavery, it was a cooperation between the African states and the CARICOM states. Um, and, and also, of course, Cuba has always been resolutely on the side of, of um, the African people. So Cuba um, has always supported these things. And... Um, and Cuba is one of the countries that has extremely good relations with the African states and and mm. highly respected by the African countries because Cuba has supported the the aspiration of for self determination on the African continent, like right. in Angola, mm. in Mozambique, in Namibia, in Zimbabwe, in um, you know the front line in, African,
0: guess indirectly in South Africa in terms of breaking up, and South Africa yeah. too, and South Africa too, yes, absolutely. So, so I, I want us to go. I, I I mean, I want one of the big issues in Dominica right now, and in the Caribbean as a matter of fact, is what what I term as the sale of passports, the sale of citizenship, um, yes. as well as the use of diplomatic, um, passports. Sale of diplomatic passports is alleged um, being used as as an income earner. In the Caribbean. Yeah. I want you to, you know, put your, your, your hat on as, as an experienced international diplomat, international, um, person. And and let's talk about the implications of that, um, as a strategy for economic, um, earnings. Because one of the justifications that we hear for it is, well, well, it's making life in the Caribbean better because it's bringing in income. Yeah. Um, so so what, well, what is your take on that and how, how do you Yeah, well first
2: of all the first thing I must say is that it's not all the CARICOM countries that are involved in, in economic citizenship. It's only five um five OECS countries, that is um Antigua Barbuda, Dominica, Saint Kitts Nevis and um uh Saint Lucia and um Antigua, and Grenada. Right? And, Grenada. Grenada. Okay. and Grenada. Yeah. St. Vincent is the only one of the OECS that's not involved in economic citizenship. I should, I should quickly say that a number of countries, including the U.S., have economic citizenship program. Um, Malta has economic citizenship program. I think Cyprus in, in, in the European Union. I think, um, Canada may also have that. So, so it's not an entirely, um, n- negative, um, um, program to have. Um, but I, I would say that I'm one of those people that I, I believe that we can develop our countries without economic citizenship, I, I, I because before we had few our countries were being developed. Um, however, if economic citizenship is a vehicle to, for pools of investment funds, well, let us do that, but let us do it with a certain um, level of transparency and, and, and accountability, and the, the the record of some of these um, Caribbean countries when it comes to accountability and transparency for economic citizenship is not very good record. I mean Saint Kitts has problems um, uh, with with the with the funds and the accountability of the funds. Dominica is yet to to tell the population how many how many people have economic citizenship. I, up to now, I'm waiting to hear that figure because um, right now. Um, the the sale of economic citizenship has become the major income earner for Dominica so
0: let me me, me stop you there Um, every time I raise that issue I am told that it's a matter of public records it's published in the Gazette if we search wherever it's available the number of our citizen um, passports that were issued, the names of the people um, I, I mean is it that it's in plain sight and we just don't know where it is or is it really not available?
2: Well, well, it's, it's actually the names as they, 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 we get new citizens is in, published in the in the right. mm-hmm. But what I'm looking for, what the government has failed to provide, is a cumulative figure. Because, you know, economic citizenship didn't start with the Scarlett administration. It started with the Eugenia Charles administration. So we've had economic citizens from 1993 to now. I would like to know what that cumulative figure is and and you know the one thing that what economic citizenship has done for to dominica right, it has made us a country with with multi multinational um uh um citizens so we have we have dominicans dominican citizens who are of russian background or chinese background or so you know one day we could well have a a, a multinational um population a lot of these economic citizens don't live in Dominica, but they could come to live in Dominica if they want, if they choose to. Because we've given them citizenship, they've bought it. Um, and, and almost to the point where those of us who were born there, we don't have any more rights than these people. These people have equal rights with us. So um, that is a concern because they, many of these people who can buy a passport have far more means economically than, than most Dominicans. And they, if they came to live in Dominica, they would. Um, if they came to live in Dominica, they would be better off, and they would have better ability to buy um, assets like land.
0: But we've, we've experienced um, that before, and we've seen the impact. I mean, when the people from Syria and Lebanon and whoever it is came to Dominica, um, they were given access to to finance and banking and and, and business contacts that locals do not have, and we see the effect of the disparity of newcomers over people who've been there all along. So what you say is not not far-fetched. It's something that we've already seen and we've already experienced that has not been a favorable experience for the average Dominican. So so I I mean, I share your concern um, with that, and I also share your view that I don't think um, the sale of, of fast spots is a viable means of, of 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 economic economic development. I I I, I don't I, I I resist the idea that it's comparable to what is done in the U.S. or in Canada, where um, the where thing there are very is that, specific you know, and, and tight guidelines as to how you qualify to even become a citizen. It's not yeah. that you just pay some money and you get a passport.
2: Right. Well, the thing is that right now. The focus more is on people buying the passports rather than the ability to invest in Dominica, and that's what concerns me. Because I think economic citizenship should serve as a mechanism for investment flows, and I'm better not seeing. But what I have seen in recent times, in the last few months, is the government is spending a lot of this money on all kinds of things, not for any major investment, but Things that the tax base, that taxes should cover, um, you know, there um, are all kinds of um, projects being funded by um, this, the money that normally would have gone into any long-term significant investment. I'm not saying that. What I'm seeing now is the financing of a lot of projects to ensure electability, and that is really what is going on right now in Dominica.
0: Right, I, I I think I think that that is very true. That um, it seems like our governments in the Caribbean are more concerned of getting reelected than in doing a good job while they're in office. But let's talk yeah. about the diplomatic passport aspect of it. A number of um, persons have been arrested, and um, one side claims that they were arrested while being while holding diplomatic passports. Um another the government says no, some of these people did have passports but they were cancelled ahead of them being arrested. But I mean whether they whether it was before or after, what is the what is the process by which you you think that someone should be chosen as a diplomat, the role that they should be expected to play, and how is it that we able to get it wrong so many times that person yeah. who were once diplomats are now um, facing prosecution in, the, uh, in various yeah. parts of the world. Yeah. Well, let me
2: let me say that there there is a, a, a distinction to be made between the diplomatic passport and the economic citizenship, because the the diplomatic passport is not part of the economic citizenship program. Right. What what Dominica has done, um, and and since Dominica has really um, gone down the road on that one, is to appoint a lot of foreigners as his as diplomatic rep- representatives. But one of the unfortunate things is that the government has done that, but they've never really told the Dominican people that who, who these, these diplomatic representatives are. They've never made it public. And even when the opposition asked in parliament for a list of these diplomatic representatives, the, 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 the foreign minister refused to give that information. And basically said that public um, foreign policy is being conducted in the in the media. I think that was rather unfortunate because in parliament we should parliament should be the place that every activity of the government is tabled. And basically, these diplomatic appointments are being made in secret. And and some of the people that have been given these diplomatic um, appointments and passports um, are people of questionable character because. They end up in the courts. These are people who have ended up in the courts. I'll give you some examples, right? Like right now, we have about um, six. There are six cases in different courts in in around the world where Dominica foreign um, foreign nationals who serve as Dominica diplomats have uh, I, I, uh, before the court. You have um, in Iran. You have Ali Reza Monfared, which is very familiar to many Dominicans. Recently, he was an Iranian national who was uh, um, living in Dominica, um, but he operated out of Malaysia. So you have in New York, in New York court, you have um, another Dominican diplomat, which is um, Ng Lapseng, the N.G. Lapseng. He's a a Dominican diplomat. Then you have in England, in the court in England, you have, um, Alison, um, Madweke, right? Former oil minister, petroleum minister of of Nigeria. Um, you have in, um, in New York, you have this other case of Monfared's um, colleague. Now, I don't know if he's a Dominican diplomat, but he's linked to the, to Monferred. Um, you also have in Italy, the, the Dominica ambassador to the FAO, facing uh, fraud and money laundering charges. You have in Czech Republic, another, another Dominica diplomat, uh, the um, ambassador to Slovakia. His name is Francis Seksavov. He is facing tax fraud and, 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 and money laundering charges in, in Czech Republic. So all of these people, they have Dominica diplomatic passports. Now, if if proper due diligence was being done, such people would never get Dominica um, diplomatic appointments. So I'm saying that something is absolutely wrong with the with the process of how Dominica has been appointing foreigners to, to represent it abroad. And the worst part of it, they never tell the Dominican people that these people represent them abroad. It's, never, it's not in the public domain at all. You cannot conduct diplomacy and, and, and diplomatic appointments in secrecy. Something is wrong.
0: And I mean, I mean, do we have a secret service in Dominica where we, where we're compromising the safety of our agents if we reveal their names? I I, <laughs> I don't understand why, why it's a secret. Um, if I'm traveling to in Europe, in Eastern Europe to know, oh, well, we have an ambassador, you know, um, yeah. in, in Czechoslovakia, in, in the Czech Republic. So if, if I run into issues where I need some assistance or for some facilitation, I can. Yeah.
2: Contact this and you person know and he can he can help me, you know. Right. There there was one particular case of uh, Dominica's ambassador to Ireland. You know that guy. He when when you know I did some research on his background. That's a guy who was a neo-Nazi. He was involved in far-right groups um, from the time he was in his twenties. And at the time he was appointed ambassador to Ireland, he was already eighty years old. And, but, you know, if you just Google his name, you would come up with his history. And and for Dominica to have appointed somebody like that, uh, uh, somebody who supported um, neo-Nazi and far-right groups and, and, and Hitler, I mean, I just couldn't believe that Dominica would do such a thing. And that is what the Dominica government has been involved in, appointing people that they really don't know. And, 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 and I wonder why they're making disappointments. I only have to believe that some kind of transaction is being done. That is
0: why these people are getting diplomatic passports. And, and so that further erodes the work that is being done on a diplomatic level with the limited resources that we have. That well, it erodes
2: it our erodes, it erodes credibility, credibility as a
0: country no,
2: abroad, you know. In in the in the respective countries where these people live, and also um, the international media is beginning to get information. I mean, you probably saw the expose that 60 Minutes did on um, on 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 CBI and diplomatic passports in January, and also repeated in in June. I mean, that that give
0: that was a black mark for Dominica. You know. And yeah, it just seems like we're shooting ourselves in the foot. So let's talk a little bit as we come, as we draw close to the show, because the producers have indulged just a little bit. Um, talk about some of the, cause, cause, cause we acknowledge that the CBI program is bringing funds into the country, desperately needed funds. So, so as people who, who, who advocates against such a program, against the merits or the effects of such a program? What are some of the areas um, that you see a country like Dominica can can exploit or use, um, especially if you can relate it to to foreign affairs, um, to to bring much needed development and investment yes. and so on to the country?
2: Well, I I think that there's there's definitely an alternate route to um, economic transformation of our country. And that is, um, I I always saw that the the decline of bananas would open up an era where we would become um, a major producer of food products. I think that that possibility still exists, but we have not yet fully um, embraced it. So our production of agricultural crops for export would be one of the areas that we, we should concentrate on becoming a, food, a, a, a major food producer in, 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 in the CARICOM. Second, we have um, we have um, resources like water, for example. We, 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 we failed to create a water industry for export. Um, a third thing would be um, Dominica, because of where we are located. In real estate, we say location, location, location. But if we take that that philosophy of location and say, where we're located, we're located between two French islands. I, I would see deepening integration, economic, an important um, political and economic objective for Dominica, uh, for Dominica and uh, as a country and as a government. Um, I would say that, you know, we have all the money that we are spending importing oil to generate electricity we can we can save that money simply by making the the uh, the leap to renewable energy and and moving away from oil as the as the the, the main um, source of our electric generation because you know most of the oil we consume on Dominica is for electricity some of it is for transport but the, the significant part of it is for electricity and we we should have ended that long time we 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 have we are blessed as a country with natural sources of energy we have hydro already we have we have we have sun abundant sunshine we have wind we also have the ocean current from waves um so we have all the possible sources to have alternate energy where we don't have to depend on 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 on, on diesel to yeah. generate electricity and and then you know we have other we have other um, resources like marine resources we have 200 miles of um economic zone around us. We, we we can certainly develop our fisheries in, because we, we have we have significant warm water. And in in that water, this ocean, we have more sea than we have land. But there are resources there. There's fish resources and there are also other resources like natural gas and and, and oil in our in our waters for our long term development. So I think that to have our country depend on um, uh, on passport, sale of passports to me is a retrogressive step, and I I would I would I I just cannot see the future of our country dependent on passports because all it takes is one bad guy with our passports and that passport program will come to an end.
0: I know. I said one of these days, all it takes is for one of these terrorist um, attacks in Europe or somewhere. To leave a Dominican passport behind, and, and, yeah. and that and that would end that really, really, really quickly. Okay, last area I want to touch on before we go yeah. is the question of governance, um, accountability, and um, when we talk about that, electoral reform always comes to mind, um, and, and as the main issue, electoral reform. But also just accountability and transparency in good governance. Can we just touch on that a little bit before before we close? Your your yes. opinions on that.
2: Well, um, on 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 governance, you know, it's basically we're talking about accountability to the public, and and a lot of times our governments they're not always accountable to the public. They pass laws, um, they they. Um, they do. They, they, they take certain positions. They um they, they violate human rights. They um they they try to um, limit um, political rights. You know, and 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 that takes us into the whole arena of electoral reform. But well, Dominica has not had electoral reform for more than In fact, in fact, the whole period of um. Of uh, independence, we have not had economic, we have not had electoral reform. One of one of the things that happened to us, not doing electoral reform, we ended up in in 2014 at the last election, when the voters list, which has not been revised all these years, has more people on it than the total population, Uh, and that 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 is uh, that's a serious. State of affairs where the voters list has more people than your your, your total population is right. because we've not taken time to address the um the, the 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 list. On that list, we have a lot of people who uh, have migrated who no longer live in Dominica. And I take the view that your ability to vote in Dominica should be strictly based on on your residency. If you are not resident in Dominica, you should not have the right to vote. It's not because your name is on the on the list that you can run to Dominica every five years to vote. And then, worst of all, we've seen a bad practice that has emerged over the years, where um, political parties are transporting people to vote just for that one day to strengthen their position electorally. I think that um, the country is crying for electoral reform, and 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 that. That has been clearly articulated by the Organization of American States Observer Mission to the elections in Dominica in 2009 and 2014. The OAS saw some serious gaps that need to be addressed. And, and, and they've made some very specific recommendations, including a new voters list, including finance reform, you know, people who, who, um, financing of elections, um, uh, by, by, um, should, there should be limits, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, so basically, and then, you know, we also have the Commonwealth in, in the 2014 elections, the Commonwealth, um, sent an observer mission and they saw some serious, um, uh, irregularities and they made some recommendations for, for, for addressing these irregularities and gaps. Um, yet the government is still, um, not, um, taking action to do that. And are then, those, worst of all- Are
0: those recommendations available, um, uh, for, for the public to view, or is that? Yes.
2: The- yes. Those, those recommendations are available. If, um, if you go to the, the OAS electoral observer mission to Dominica for both 2009 and 2014, you will, you will get, you can get that online. And then the Commonwealth one, which took some time for the Dominican people to access, um, is now is available too. Okay. Um, And um, you know the kind of things that is being recommended is um, first of all to have a level playing field. That the the what the Commonwealth said was that the the Dominican elections in 2014 was not a fair election. It would say it was free, but it was not fair. And, and, um, it is because that there are all of these gaps. And one of the sad things that's going on in Dominica is that you have an electoral commission, which is dominated by, um, people from the ruling party who are not exercising their, uh, their duties and obligations under the constitution, which is to be independent of any party. They go, they, you are there to represent the public interest. Not the interest of any one political party. And that is what, that is the reason why we don't have electoral reform, huh, In Dominica. because the electoral commission, which is charged with this, is not doing its, um, um, is not meeting its, its
0: obligation. Obligation to the people is meeting its obligation to the party. Right. But yeah. but that and brings they, us that brings us the need for constitution reform because if the constitution makes provision for the ruling party to do most of the appointment onto the commission, um, we depend on the goodness of men to to, to you know to, to to be conscientious and we know how that how that how that where that heads.
2: Yeah, well, the 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 the, the constitutional um, changes. As you know, requires a, a, a two-thirds majority of parliamentarians. <laughs> I, um, uh, well, right now the ruling party does have a two-thirds majority. They have 15 seats, and that's two-thirds. Right. Um, but but you, you see, they have not advanced any political reforms uh, because they they like they like what they have because it, it gives them it gives them an upper hand. But I think that politically, we need to have a, a, a level playing field, especially when it comes to elections and, 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 and the representation of, of, um, of people. Because you see, what
0: happens is that um, so, so the government is responsible for the, electoral, so the constitution reform. The government appoints the electoral commission. The lack of electoral reform favors government getting re-elected. And and so you have maybe what happens the result of the election may not be reflective of the will of the general population, who is going to become increasingly frustrated not being able to implement their wishes, and so we might be we might be building up a head of steam in a powder keg, um, yeah, and that and that is what that is what the fear would be, um, that that mm-hmm. the people in power should see the need. To recognize the right of everybody, whether they support them or not, to voice their opinion. Because again, you go to parliament and you see the actions of the speaker. And if somebody were to drop in from Mars and listen to five minutes of, of the thing, they would, they would definitely come to the conclusion that the, that the speaker is, is part of the government's team. Yes. Um, so. Well
2: well let me let me just say on you know, as far as the, the reforms that we need in as far as elections is concerned mm-hmm. um one of them is, is um the, the, the voters list. Mm-hmm. And and if I was to just read from the, the Commonwealth mission, right, mm-hmm. it says that it says that there appears to be a credible public appetite for the revision of legislation guiding the compilation of the voters register. And for elections to be more reflective of the wishes of persons resident in the Commonwealth of Dominica. Right. It says that every effort should be made to hold this debate promptly and act on any outcomes as expediently as possible. Wow. And then it also talks about voter ID cards. It says that the, the mission acknowledges the current progress made under the OECS integration program to issue national ID cards that will serve as voter ID cards. We therefore urge that the process is expeditiously completed and identification requirements to cast one's ballot be amended to require an elector to verify their identity using this card. Mm-hmm. So, so that is, you know, the government was not even able, even with that national ID card that they, 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 which was their preference, they were not able to do that. Now I see that they have approved six million dollars for the electoral commission to um, issue voter ID cards. But I would say that, that while that is um, is is is, is um, commendable, it cannot happen. You cannot have voter ID cards without a cleaning of the list. Right. It is It is only after you have a cleaning of the voters' list that you can issue ID cards. And that is the point that the government needs to understand. And the Electoral Commission is going along with the same old list and wanting to give people ID cards based on that same old list. I think that's a non-starter, and, 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 and it's just building up that tension you mentioned. That if we don't have a level playing field in, in the electoral arena, we'll have trouble in Dominica.
0: Yep. I, I, that, that I, that I, I can see happening. And we need to have, um, term limits and, and, you know, and, and this thing of Well, that, that,
2: that is a constitutional change, yeah. the term limit. And I, 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 you know, St. Kitts was able to do it. St. Kitts has reduced the term of the prime minister to two terms. Mm-hmm. I think that is a, that is a something we can emulate. Um, I think it's you know we we need to we need to put checks and balances on the power of the prime minister and one of the ways is to reduce it to two terms. Two terms. Um, the, the second thing is that St Kitts also had a new voters list, Antigua had a new voters list, Guyana had a new voters list. Um, so I think that the recommendations from both the OAS and the Commonwealth are very much on target, and I would like to see those recommendations implemented by the electoral commission. And if the electoral commission does not want to implement those things, then they should resi- all the commissioners should resign. You know. If they not. Or people those- to
0: serve, they should, yeah. That
2: people yeah, because they, they want to serve, especially those who who were appointed by the ruling party. Mm-hmm. They should not. They should realize yes, they are appointed by the ruling party, but they are not there to serve the interests of the ruling party. They are there as independent commissioners to do the best for the country and not for any party.
0: So, Chris, when we, we, we flat out of time, um, we've taken, we've indulged our, ourselves with an extra 30 minutes. I'm going to give you the yeah. opportunity to just, you know, close, you know, just give us, wrap, wrap us back to the, to the role of, of foreign policy and diplomacy can play in, in facilitating a, a domestic agenda. That yeah well, that 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 we can that can benefit the people of Dominica and and just and just give us some closing remarks in general.
2: Well, one of the good things that has happened is that we've expanded the number of countries we have diplomatic relations with. I think to over a hundred now. Um, I I would like to see us explore ways in which we can we can have um, cooperation with more more countries. Um, how we can um, work with some countries to advance our our agenda, especially with regards to the sustainable development goals, with regards to infrastructure development on Dominica, and with regards to educating our young people. Um, A number of countries have given us scholarships to study in their countries. I think we should continue that, and we should expand that as much as possible. And um, we should um, build um, closer relations with some of the African states. Um, And... um, I believe that the pursuit of a, of a transparent um, and accountable foreign policy framework is, is, is critical for the future of Dominica.
0: All right. I, you have to leave it there. And, and Crispin, I want to say thank you. Um, every time um, you come, We you, you just educate us and you do it in such a, a brilliant and, and, a, and a simple manner that all of us can grasp it and understand it and 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 you you enlighten us and clar and you know and clarify our thinking about so many topics that 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 that's not in everyday in everyday news. So I want to say thank you so much for for being on this week in interview.
2: Okay, you're very welcome. Anytime.
0: Yeah, there's certainly uh, you know I always take you up on that um, yeah. because because there's so much there's so much to share. So thank you so much once again, Crispin. You're welcome. Yeah. Okay. Good night. Bye bye. Good night. Well, listeners, there you had it. Um, uh, another very interesting conversation. I, I I am so privileged that I get to talk to these persons who have accomplished and done so much, and um, I do enjoy sharing those conversations with you, the listeners. Um, so this has been uh, another episode of this week in interview. If this was your first time listening to us, I hope you found the show um enjoyable and, and informative and that it's it's it stimulated you to think sufficiently. Join us again next week. We will have another another programme, another this weekend in interview episode. And um my regular listeners, thank you for being here every Wednesday. I don't take your your time for granted. I know how busy we all are and you put this week in interview on your agenda. We appreciate it. I hope we continue to meet your expectations of, of a very high standard show. And thank you for listening. Thanks to our producer and engineer, Sam. Thank you for uh, to our guest, uh, Mr. Crispin Gregoire. This has been This Week in Interview, a uh, TDN.net, TDNradio.net production with your host, Anthony Drago. Good night. <laughs>